0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, please. As you're turning there, I just wanted to say thank you to all of those who have made such gracious comments about my shirt today. So as everybody looks right up, <laughs> what shirt's he wearing? I think one of the uh, one of the better comments I got was somebody thought I was wearing a, um, a sheriff's badge right here. I don't know. Does that look like that or not? Um, I had another friend, a not so good friend named Edward Estes. He um, He's shot me a text to uh, show me uh, that he was able to pick out the Little Dipper on my shirt today, so um, don't be distracted now. <laughs> so I need new friends if, um, if you're interested. Okay, uh, let's take a look at Luke chapter uh, 22. That's going to be my primary text this evening, but I want to I wanna get a little bit of a running start. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to go back to Luke chapter 19 and following just for a, a minute... And if you want to go back there and follow along in the text with me. And I want to mention to you, uh, I want to point out three themes that we're going to see in those, these three chapters as we move towards Luke chapter 22. They're going to come out in Luke chapter 22 as well. So uh, the, the, the three themes are these. Jesus is in control. He rules. Jesus rules. He's in control. That's number one. The second one is Jesus and his followers are going to win. The third one is Jesus and his followers are going to suffer. Luke chapter 19. Jesus enters Jerusalem in, uh, uh, in verses 28 and following. He enters Jerusalem and immediately he weeps over the city. He enters Jerusalem and weeps. And then he says that he is going to start teaching. He begins teaching right away. Um, and it immediately harkens our minds back to Luke chapter 4, where he he explains his purpose for being here, Jesus does, and one of, them, one of his reasons for being here is to proclaim the good news. And even when you get to chapter 20, the very first verse of chapter 20, look at that real quick. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the good news, the chief priests the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, and they start challenging him, his authority. So that's what he's doing, he's teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel. And they ask him, where do you get your authority? Does he get it from family or lineage? Does he get it from Caesar? As we see in the later parts of the chapter. No, he gets it from God and his word. Where do we get our authority? From God and his word. He teaches that the scribes, at the end of the chapter, look at the last paragraph of the chapter there, he teaches that the scribes are faking their spirituality by wearing long robes and living for great uh, greetings in the marketplace and trying to get the best seats in the synagogue and the best places of honor at feasts and they're praying long prayers. But he says at the beginning of chapter 21, real spirituality is about the heart. And it's demonstrated by the lowly, impoverished woman, widow, as she gives all she had to live on. She gives it all. The religious leaders don't rule. They may look great. They may look like they're in control, but they don't rule. They're actually acting foolish. The greatest person here is the one who gives of all that she has. Keep that in mind. Jesus is about to do this. Luke 21, the rest of Luke 21, Jesus has this fantastic message. Part of that fantastic message is that the temple is going to be destroyed and that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. All this bad stuff is coming. And by the way, uh, they will lay their hands on you, he says. They they will cuff you. They're going to get you. They're going to arrest you. They will persecute you. You'll be delivered. They'll deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons you will be brought before kings and governors it says there in verse 12 for my name's sake so if you're going to follow me if you're going to be ascribed to my name for us if you're going to be called christian all this kind of bad stuff is going to happen but then he kind of flips it around in verses 13 through 15 this is actually an opportunity for you to bear witness that's great. Don't, don't think about what you will say, he says. I will give you wisdom. I will give you the wisdom you need, and no one will be able to withstand it or contradict it. Okay, but I thought you were going to say, Jesus, I thought you were going to say something about how the persecution won't hurt or how that, uh, we will end up defeating them or something. Look at verse 16. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. There's that phrase again. We saw back in the end of verse 12. You'll be turned over by your family, those closest to you. Some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. Well, that's a great recruitment tool. What a great evangelistic message. Come follow me, Jesus says, And lots of bad things are going to happen. I thought you were preaching good news. Look at the very next verse. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Wow. So, where's the good news? There's the good news. Where's the gospel that Jesus is preaching? There's the gospel that Jesus is preaching, the good news. He says here, not only that, but that the, the Son of Man will come again. Look, just briefly, at verses 27 and 28 of this chapter. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things began to take place, begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Look at verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Son of Man's coming, so be ready. Wake up. Be faithful to him. In fact, as we heard this morning, his imminent return might be a good reason for you to remain single you have to listen to that sermon from this morning. So we see Jesus is teaching these three things that you've seen already. Jesus is in control. He rules. Not, not these other people like Caesar or religious leaders that seem to be ruling. But he also, he says that his followers are going to win. But they're also, Jesus and his followers are going to suffer. Which brings us to Luke chapter 22. Our main teaching text this, this evening. Luke chapter 22, he's going to proclaim these three same things here. Christ is saying, his end, his, his, his end, he's ending his ministry here on earth. He's getting even more serious about his coming and suffering and death. And Then, chapter 22, verse 1. We have a little bit of a transition, the last two chapters in chapter 21, and here we are in chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Chapter 22, verses 1 through uh, 6 here, is a plot to kill Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus is thickening. The the, the Here at the very beginning, we have a, a new scene, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. It's a cause for celebration there in verse 1. The Passover is a celebration of liberation, right? Celebration of liberation from Egypt. But then, in verse 2, you have this idea that the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus. This is not new to us. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke. They, they've been wanting this for a while. Why did, they, why did they want to kill him? Well, it says right here, they feared the people. They feared the people. The people were turning towards Christ and away from the religious leaders. Verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas, as is called Iscariot, who was, numbered up, up, who was numbered of the twelve, He went away and conferred with chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Verse 3, Satan is now involved. This is not looking good. So this is much more than a temporal, this is a reminder, there's much more than a temporal, earthly, physical event that's about to happen at the cross. It's actually cosmic. It's God versus Satan. Right? God versus Satan. It's the the protagonist and the antagonist in the story of the gospel. From the beginning, it has been a cosmic struggle. Remember the beginning? God creates, Satan tempts to fall. And there's more. Satan enters Judas, who is numbered among the twelve. Luke explicitly mentions this point. Numbered among the twelve, we already know that he is right. These are seemingly unnecessary words. So why does he mention it? He well, he mentions it to draw attention to it. He mentioned these words to draw attention to it. Well, what is he drawing attention to? The emphasis. Uh, result, the the result is us thinking, you know, this is not good, because now the religious leaders have an access to Jesus. So in the Gospel of Luke, we've basically had three different groups of people okay? Three different groups of people are Jesus, and usually his disciples are involved there, and then you have the crowds here, and then you have the religious leaders. And and think of them in that order, too, okay? So Jesus and his disciples, the religious leaders over here, and the crowds have always been a buffer for Jesus. And many times, the, the religious leaders have tried to get to Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, but they couldn't because of the crowds. And here, we see the same thing. They, they aren't going after Jesus because they fear the crowds. They fear the people. Do you see what I'm saying there? They fear the people. Um, so Judas would offer the religious leaders a, a special opportunity to get to Jesus without the crowds being there. Because he's numbered among the 12. And verse 6 says he, he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. It's not looking good, is it? then we have a kind of pause in the action. The the plot is thickening, and the action is rising, and it seems like we have a little bit of a pause here. In verses 7 through 13, Jesus sends disciples to prepare for the Passover. Look at verse 7. I'll read verse 7 through 13. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had, had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Notice the seeming absurdity of the request. The the mysteriousness of the request. Enter the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. He's going to meet you. Follow him. And then go to that house and then tell that master this. Ask him this question, and then he will show you a room that is ready, it's furnished. Prepare the meal there. It seems really mysterious, doesn't it? It seems so mysterious to me. It actually reminds me of uh, before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Same kind of things, thing happens there in Luke chapter 19. Um, it seems mysterious, but it's to demonstrate something. What does it demonstrate? It demonstrates that Jesus is in control. Jesus rules. Jesus is in absolute control of the situation. He is the one with the authority that we saw in chapter 20 and he's the one orchestrating these events to come in the rest of the book. We know what's coming. We know what's coming, right? And he is pausing in the action here to show that he is in absolute control. The meal is ready. Verses 14 through 23 is the Lord's Supper. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is finished in the God, it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Okay. Christ is teaching something in this narrative. He is the teacher. He calls himself the teacher in Luke, uh, in verse 11. And he calls himself the teacher. He's going to teach something. Christ earnestly desires to Eat the Passover with his disciples before he suffers, he says. some strong language, he earnestly desires to eat this Passover with them. And he will not eat it, the Passover, until it, the Passover, is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. A little bit confusing. But in other words, another celebratory meal is coming. When the kingdom fully comes. And he will eat that meal at that time. Jesus and his disciples will win. And he takes the cup, he gives thanks, gives it to the disciples and makes another abstinence vow. He says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. The kingdom of God is coming. The Passover meal looks backwards to God's redemption of Israel in Egypt, out of Egypt, but also looks forward to the coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus and his followers are going to win. Then he uses symbols to teach. And that's what's brought us even here tonight. The bread representing the body to be broken and to be remembered. The cup representing the blood to be spilt and new covenant that is coming. Not only that, he explicitly tells them twice. His body is given for you, he says. His blood is poured out for you. He has died for you. His death is a substitutionary, atoning death. God has looked upon my sin. God has looked upon your sin. And and the wrath, the hatred that he has for that sin, he decided to pour out that wrath on his son. Jesus. Romans 5 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, you know it, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have, we have now been justified by his blood, verse 9 says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Did, did you, I'm sure you did, did you see what we just read in Colossians chapter 2? Can I turn there real fast? Maybe not. Yeah, I can. Hey, here it is. Listen to what, what, says, what he says here in Colossians chapter 2. God had made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our sin stands against us and it legally demands something of us. What does it demand? Damnation. Eternally. Stands against us. We have this debt, this heavy weight, this debt that stands against us. But the next verse, the next phrase says, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If, if you're an unbeliever, recognize what Christ has done. And fall on your face before him. Place your faith and your trust in him. Believe in him. He, he has given his body for you, he has shed his blood for you. Recognize him as Lord. Jesus rules, he's in control. Recognize that Jesus will win, and Jesus has suffered for you. And know that if you follow him, you too will suffer. Chapter 21. This is no easy call. This call for you to be a follower of Christ is a call to die. It's a call to die to yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. If you're a believer, remember what he has done. Be reminded about what he has done for you. Remember his body that was given for you. Remember his blood that was shed for you. Do this in remembrance of him. What does he mean by that? Is it just simply a remembrance of the facts of his life? I think yes, it is. As if his followers, you know, we have been with him for about three years now. We're going to forget that he gave his body and blood for them. Okay, it is that, but it's not only that. The kind of remembrance we're talking about should produce an action. Then, without transition, Christ tells them that his betrayer is among them. Do you see that? The very, he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You would expect him to say, do this in remembrance of me, right? That's how we do it. And we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21 says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Without transition, he says, my betrayer is here. My betrayer is here. And he says, his path with this betrayer in mind, in verse 22, has been determined. Who's in control? (laughs) Is the betrayer in control? Are the chief priests and the scribes, from verse 2, are they in control? They might think, they're, they're overcoming this man. No. Jesus knows it's coming. And he is in control. Jesus rules, he's in control. So, naturally, the disciples, verse 23, they begin to question one another of, of who this might be, wouldn't you do that too? My betrayer is right here, and they're like, it was him. You know, like, no, it was you, no, it was you. Then, again without transition, look at verse 24, at verse 23, they begin to question each other, In verse 24, A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be, be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> really? But can't you see that happening though? Like, they're, they're, they're there. Jesus says, my betrayer is right here with me. He's here. His hand is on the table. and Everyone moves their hand off the table. You know, like it wasn't me. You know, they're asking, was it you? Was it, no, no, it's not me. I'm not the betrayer. Look what, look what I've done. See, see what I've done? Oh, it can't be me. Look what I've done over here. See, I'm pretty great, Right? You're not as great as me. Now there's argument about which one is the greatest. So Jesus interrupts. And um, as these men are are arguing about who is the greatest, I mean, Christ has just told them that I'm going to die for you. And they are arguing about who is the greatest. They've totally missed it. They've missed it. The disciples' concerned with their own greatness, so Jesus interrupts and teaches. Jesus teaches, in verses 24 through 27, Jesus teaches what a great person looks like. Verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors but not so with you. Rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. The world rules with selfish motives and they call that person great. That person is great. They rule. Do do you see that? Do you see that phrase, you can do whatever you want as long as you put your mind to it? Do whatever you want. You deserve this title or that authority. You've earned it. You have the right to demand this or that from them because of your title, your position. But the follower of Christ humbly serves, giving of his life to others. And Christ calls that person great. This is what we should be remembering tonight when we remember Christ's death. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember Christ's servanthood. Remember Christ's humility. He knows what suffering is going to come, and he humbly chooses to follow the will of the Father. Jesus is going to suffer. His disciples are going to suffer. Remember those three things? Jesus is in control. Jesus and his disciples are going to suffer. Jesus and his disciples are going to win. Just a couple of points of application as we think about this. Number one, I think, obviously, as we just talked about, serve others. You, you want to be great. Do you want to be great? Like really, really great. Great serve others. Do you do you want to be a good leader? Like a really good leader. Serve others. So exactly what it says in verse at the end of verse 26. The leader as one who serves. You want to follow Christ as he has called? Serve others. Let Christ define what greatness is. In what ways do you need to grow in serving? How can you serve? How can you better serve your wife? How can you better serve your parents? How can you better serve your sister? How can you better serve your enemy? Love your enemy, he says, Christ says. Love your enemy. Do good to them. Pray for them. Bless them. But you really enjoy being served, don't you? We really do, of course. We all love to be served. You would think that Jesus um, calls the person that's being served the greatest, but he calls the least among them the greatest. Serving is harder, and Jesus says serving is way better. So this is what it means um, to remember. This is what we should be remembering about Christ, his humble, sacrificial service. He gave his life for you. Christ Giving of himself for the sake of others. Remember this. Remember this gospel. Remember Christ's humility and service and emulate him. The gospel demands it. Give your time, your talent, and your treasure. This is greatness. Mark Dever says, in a world that is all about getting, we Christians are to stand out as people who are all about giving. Number two, Rejoice in the bittersweet sovereignty of God. God is in control. We saw that in verses 7 through 13. And I believe that's why that section is there to demonstrate that its main purpose there is to demonstrate that Jesus is in absolute control. We saw it in verse 22, it has all been determined that, his, uh, that he will be betrayed and killed. Jesus is in total control. Jesus is going to suffer, but Jesus is going to win. He's going to die on a cross and bear the wrath of God, but he's going to resurrect and have a celebratory meal when his kingdom fully comes. God's will was for Christ to die, and that's bitter, but it's also sweet. Do you see God's bitter, sweet sovereignty in your life? In our lives, it is often through bitter trials that God brings sweet fellowship with him. Let trials move you towards God. And number three, who do you look like? I think this is one of those times where we can look at the Scriptures and think about who do we look like. Do we look like religious leaders? Maybe you look more like religious leaders here who are actually antagonistic towards Christ. You need to recognize who Christ is and come and follow him. Maybe we look more like the disciples who are only concerned about our own greatness and not concerned with serving, verses 24 and 27. Through twenty-seven. What about this? Do we look like Judas? What did Judas actually look like? Counted among the twelve, called to be a, dis- a disciple of Christ, yet he betrays Christ with his actions when he's away. Judas had the ability to be a part of Jesus. Jesus. Judas had the ability, to be part of Jesus' most intimate group, and yet deny him. One author says this. Some associate with Jesus for a time. Some who associate with Jesus for a time will ultimately deny him. Until their desertion, they will look every bit like disciples. Defection in the ranks is a real possibility and Judas' example is an exhortation to constancy of faith. What what a sad story that would be. I think of teens, but I even think of adults who can fake it for a while really pretending to be followers of Christ, maybe even members of our church, but fall away. And that's heartbreaking. Is that you? Tonight, may we remember and may we strive to be like Christ, who selflessly gives of his life for those who would be only concerned about themselves and their greatness. He gives his life for them. He loves his enemies and suffers for them. Let's pray. Dear God we're so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ for your son dying for our sins so that we can have a relationship with you Lord I ask that we would tonight remember what you have done and what that calls us to do may we rejoice in the bitter sweetness of your sovereignty in the cross event but also in trials of our own lives. Lord, we ask that we would become more and more like you who sees greatness in those who serve. So use this text to work in our lives these truths so that we would firmly believe in who you are and what you've done for us. God, us in these things we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen.